to Pontifex. I think that's the podcast we still do, correct? I don't know. It's just been so long. We've all forgotten everything. Yeah, so in case you don't remember, I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is the first episode that we're recording since we went on hiatus back in, like, June? Yeah, early, late May? Yeah, it's been a long time since we've actually recorded, and this is the perfect spot for a very special episode, because we're not really ranking a Pope today, we are exploring Pope Joan. Amazing. I'm gonna have to go back through that embarrassment that I had (laughs) months ago. You were delightfully and sufficiently bamboozled and I worked so hard to try and make sure that I gave nothing away so now I'm going to give everything away and give you all the details because yeah last time we presented Pope Joan how it would have been if we had taken the most famous accounts as historically viable but we need the bigger picture we need the origins we need the arguments and we need what it all means. So this also means we have a lot to get through. So are you ready for all of this Pope Joanness? You know what? No, but let's just get into it anyway. <laughs> well, let me tell you, our listeners are really ready for all of this Pope Joanness because I have gotten messages like, hey, you said you were going to do Pope Joan this summer. What happened? <laughs> uh, you know what happened? My landlord went, you can't live here anymore. And then our rent was uh, double to triple the amount that we were currently paying, and we decided to purchase a home. Yay! Yeah, so that all happened, and so it's been a long time since we actually talked about Pope Joan, so this is a perfect place to start at the beginning with the origins of the legend. Now, despite Pope Joan allegedly existing in the 9th century, The earliest account of her and her life doesn't appear until the 13th century. And that should already be giving you a whole lot of pause and casting doubt on the veracity of the whole thing. Because when we don't have sources, when those sources show up later, something has gone wrong. Mm -hmm. They just, someone made up a story and attributed it elsewhere. Exactly. So the first account of the Pope Joan story comes from the Chronica Universalis Metensis, or the Chronicle of Metz, written in 1250 by Jean de Mailly, a Dominican chronicler. His account is simple and speaks only of an unnamed female pope. And he says, quote, Concerning a certain pope, or rather female pope, who is not set down in the list of popes or bishops of Rome, because she was a woman who disguised herself as a man and became, by her character and talents, a curial secretary, then a cardinal, and finally pope. One day while mounting a horse, she gave birth to a child. Immediately, by Roman justice, she was bound by the feet of the horse... Immediately, by Roman justice, she was bound by the feet to a horse's tail and dragged and stoned by the people for half a league and where she died, there she was buried, and at this place is written, 
Petra Paterpatrum Papisa Prodito Partum, or O Peter, Father of Fathers, Betray the Child-Bearing of the Woman Pope. At the same time, the four-day fast called the Fast of the Female Pope was first established. Oh my gosh, okay. That poor horse's tail. Yeah, the whole dragging and stoning and using a horse for it. None of it is good. But this is the first whole account that we have of a female pope. And notably, in this account, Jean de Mailly begins with the word requisite or query or to be verified, which indicates that this story was already in doubt, even at this time, and he was making a note to himself to look into it further. A later copy of Jean de Mailly's account presents the alternative story, where Pope Joan was not killed at the procession, but was instead deposed and confined to penance, and that the child she gave birth to, a son, later became the Bishop of Ostia, and entombed Pope Joan in the Cathedral of Ostia when she died. That version, we have no idea who authored it, but it was attached, a copy of this original account, by Jean de Mailly. Now, the next account we have is from Etienne de Bourbon, or Stephen of Bourbon, the Dominican Inquisitor, who we might remember from our Patreon bonus episode, as he is our main source on Saint Guinefort. Ah, Guinefort, our favorite papa. <laughs> My favorite saint ever. He was the guy who wanted to wipe out any history of Guinefort, and in so preserved the history of Guinefort, so suck it, dickhead. Why would you ever get rid of that good boy? Because it wasn't a real saint and rah rah rah, you know, being Stephen of Bourbon. In Etienne's The Seven Gift of the Holy Spirit, he provides a very similar account to Jean de Mailly's, with no name given for the popus, but he sets it in the year 1100, which would have been during the papacy of Pascal II, and he brings the devil into it. Because, of course, Etienne de Bourbon would bring the devil into it. He says, But an occurrence of wonderful audacity, or rather insanity, happened around 1100, as is related in the Chronicles. A certain woman, learned and well-versed in the notary's art, assuming male clothing and pretending to be a man, came to Rome. Through her diligence as well as her learning in letters, she was appointed as a curial secretary. Afterwards, under the devil's direction, she was made a cardinal and finally pope. Having become pregnant, she gave birth while mounting a horse. But when Roman justice was informed of it, she was dragged outside the city, bound by her feet, set to the hooves of a horse, and for half a league she was stoned by people. This time they used the hooves. They used the hooves! Could you imagine? Like, none of this is good, but there's an extra galump that goes along with being attached to the, the hooves. I also feel like that would make the horse walk like someone wearing one of those, like, really tight, long dresses. <laughs> Scooch, scooch, scooch. Yes, a little mermaid steps. <laughs> little mermaid steps from this horse. I mean, maybe that would be better overall, except for the fact that people were also throwing stones. So if you the were rocks. going slower, yeah, it's not great. Etienne finishes his account with the expression, Behold how such rash presumptuousness leads to so vile an end. 
Because, again, of course. He just hates everything that might be fun. He does. He hates dogs. He hates ladies. He just hates all things. He is a party pooper. He poops at the parties. And the peoples, they knows this. (laughs) Another similar version from around the same time comes from the Chronica Minor and the Franciscan Friar of Erfurt. He says, There was another false pope, whose name and year are unknown, for she was a woman, as is acknowledged by the Romans, and of refined appearance, great learning, and hypocritically of high conduct. She disguised herself in the clothes of a man, and eventually was elected to the papacy. While pope, she became pregnant, and when she was carrying, a demon openly published the fact to all in the public court by crying this verse to the pope. Papa Peter Patrum, Papisa Pandito Partum. The same one as before, which is Peter, father of fathers, betray the child-bearing woman pope, basically. Wow. Yeah. So these are our early accounts. And these, on their own, probably wouldn't have amounted to much discussion, right? It would be just a couple of obscure accounts that no one would have paid a lot of attention to. Pope Joan would be about as well-known as St. Guinefort. But things kick off on a whole new level with the most well-known account from the Chronicon Pontificum et Imperatorum, which is the Chronicle of Popes and Emperors, from the Dominican friar Martinus Polonus, also known as Martin of Apava or Martin the Pole. Now, Martinus was significant and a very influential cleric and church historian with ties to several popes of his era. According to historian Peter Stanford, Martinus's writings were held in such high regard and his chronicle became considered the quasi-official line of the Vatican. So anything he was saying was considered gospel and tacitly approved by the Vatican itself. He was also the source we used for last year's agoraphobia when we covered Sylvester II, when we talked about the necromancer pope. And his account of Pope Joan becomes the most widely disseminated and copied, and it also happens to be the most detailed. And this is where most of the information for our bamboozle episode was taken. Quote, John Anglicus, born at Mainz, was pope for two years, seven months, and four days, and died in Rome, after which there was a vacancy in the papacy of one month. It is claimed that this John was a woman, who as a girl had been led to Athens, dressed in the clothes of a man by a certain lover of hers. There she became proficient in a diversity of branches of knowledge, until she had no equal, and afterward in Rome, she taught the liberal arts and had great masters among her students and audience. A high opinion of her life and learning arose in the city, and she was chosen for Pope. While Pope, however, she became pregnant by her companion. Through ignorance of the exact time when the birth was expected, she was delivered of a child while in procession from St. Peter's to the Lateran, in a lane once named the Via Sacra, but now known as the Shunned Street, between the Colosseum and St. Clement's Church. After her death, it is said she was buried in that same place. The Lord Pope always turns aside from this street. It is believed by many that this is done because of abhorrence of the event. 
nor is she placed on the list of holy pontiff, both because of her female sex and on account of the foulness of the matter. So that's a pretty big jump from this nameless, we don't know when, female pope, to we've got a name, we've got the actual duration of the papacy, we've got all these extra details about the street in which it occurred on. This is our main, main source for Pope John. But these are far from the only sources, because... 17th century historian Frederick Spanheim claims that there are over 500 church chronicles and writers that make mention of Pope Joan in some way, shape, or fashion. This is a fairly substantial number, and one could lean in favor of there being some truth to the legend with 500 accounts, right? Yeah. And these include notable works and people, too. We're not just talking about... Dominican chroniclers. We're talking about Anastasius Bibliothecarius, Mariana Scotus, Petrarch, Bartolomeo Platina, and even Boccaccio. Like, these are respected writers in high places. We could do an entire episode just listing out the various accounts and their minor variations. But we won't. There's lots to read. Go read it. It's a good time. That being said, Petrarch's entry deserves a moment, though, because of what he says happened after Pope Joan's death. Quote, In Brescia, it rained blood for three days and three nights. In France, there appeared marvelous locusts, which had six wings and very powerful teeth. They flew miraculously through the air and all drowned in the British Sea. The golden bodies were rejected by the waves of the sea and corrupted the air so that a great many people died. He was one of these people who wrote about Joan as if she had a very strong connection with the devil, so there is, there's quite a dramatic flair here. However, none of the sources of those 500 are older than the ones we've quoted, and in many cases, the Pope Joan accounts may be found in revised copies of these writers' work, or in one single copy, but no other reproduction. So a lot of the times that we see records of Pope Joan they are inserted footnotes in different handwriting and the like. So there's no actual consistently, verifiably, constantly reproduced source on Pope Joan. And this is a huge credibility problem. And when we're dealing with later historians from the 14th, 15th, and 16th century, we also have to consider that in this time, the general consensus of the people would have been that Joan had existed 400 years ago, based on what they'd already heard, and so they would have written about it accordingly, as we see with many historical misconceptions today, even if they had no actual evidence of that. But before we start to really deconstruct the myth of Pope Joan, we should discuss the arguments for Pope Joan's existence. Because there really is no finality, there's no definite answer, particularly in the public imagination. There are still plenty of arguments being made about Joan and many, many people who believe that she was in fact a real person and a real victim of a prolonged church cover-up. And there are some compelling pieces of evidence that can and should make us think twice before dismissing Joan as a legend made out of whole cloth. So let's start with those. 
One of the elements of the story that is repeated in almost every account is that after Joan's fatal procession, the street in which she gave birth and potentially died on was always avoided by future popes whenever they conducted processions through the city. Even modern historians accept that papal processions from the Lateran to the Vatican changed routes from Jones Street to the Via Labicana sometime in the 10th century. So that'd be about right. And even more damning, the street Joan allegedly traveled down, the Via dei Quecerti, was colloquially called the Vicus Papisa, which could potentially translate to the Street of the Popus, in various sources, and not just sources that have to do with Pope Joan. This is just something this street is called. It's called the Street of the Popus quite regularly in many sources. There's also allegedly a statue of Pope Joan and her child put up in memorial on this street, which was documented by a papal secretary, Theodore of Niem, in 1413, and even Martin Luther makes mention of it in an account of his 1510 visit to Rome. However, historian John Julius Norwich suggests that the statue was removed by Pope Sixtus IV in 1480 when it was thrown in the Tiber, so conflicting information, and generally we don't want to take Martin Luther at his word of what was going on with the church. Yeah. He, uh, he had reason to make it not sound good, and hey, you have a memorial dedicated to your female pope? That's so scandalous. Sounds like something he would get on board with, even if it wasn't true. So with these various accounts of this street of the popes, it might seem that it would be easy to dismiss historians' arguments that the reason that the papal route changed was because the Vicus Papisa was just too narrow for a papal precision, as being weak, right? That, that sounds like a lame argument. Oh no, they changed it from the street where apparently the scandalous pope died just because it was, it was too small. It just seems very unbelievable. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not buying that. However, it turns out that Vicus Papisa doesn't actually refer to what those who are arguing for Pope Joan have actually assumed. According to Peter Stanford, it is well documented that this street, nicknamed the Vicus Papisa, was called as such because it bordered on the home of a family called Pape, and therefore, Vicus Papisa is not the street of the Popus, but the street of Mrs. Pape. And this is well documented and confirmed in other maps of the city. And this would also explain, too, the use of the term Vicus Papisa in sources that had nothing to do with Joan. And other historians, Cesare D'Onofrio and Elaine Barreau, argue that the alleged memorial to Pope Joan, that statue that everybody claims, was just a standard virgin and child statue that was placed in front of a church, which was then co-opted in the public imagination, given the street nickname. Which makes a lot more sense. Again, why would the church put up or allow a memorial to this heretical, scandalous woman when they could just have the Virgin Mary and Christ? Yeah. So when these factors are considered, the less exciting conclusion is that the popes didn't use the street because it was too narrow, 
is probably more likely because the street wasn't scandalous to begin with. It was just the street of Mrs. Pape. So there's that one. Now, the next argument usually made for the existence of Pope Joan has to do with something that has become a mythos in itself. This is the Sedia Stercoraria, the Throne of Tears, or the famous ball-touching chair. The ball handler. The testicle toucher. All of those. So this famous antique Roman chair, made out of marble or porphyry, has a hole cut into the seat, where allegedly the newly elected pope would sit with his genitals in the hole. And then some unfortunate cleric would have to reach in, touch the pope's testicles, and verify and claim testiculos habit e bene pedentes, or testicles he has and they hang nicely. Ah, beautiful pendulous balls. Another source suggested the term, he has the pontificals. So that is my new favorite phrase for testicles. Just got them pontificals. How you doing in your pontificals? <laughs> Seems right. But why would something like this exist if not to verify a pope's sex after a woman deceived her way to the papacy? There are some strange arguments for this one because the chair definitely does exist. We know this for a fact. This chair is real. There is one in the Vatican Museum, hosted in the Gabinetto della Mescere, which is the room of masks, although it does tend to get moved often and taken out of public display. People trying to put their balls in it? Well, don't put your balls in a chair at the Museum of the Vatican. Oh, I hope not. I really hope not, because... Oh, that's a good way to end up on the wrong side of some Roman police officers. Oof. And there is also one, another one, another real one that was brought to the Louvre by Napoleon. So these are genuine Roman artifacts, and we do know that they were in possession of the papacy. So this is not to be denied. So it is an argument about what they are for. And now the strange part of this, there are accounts of the sedia in action in terms of touching gonads. So we're going to go over those first. But as we talk about it, I'm going to send you a picture. Okay. Have a look at the ball chair. Ball chair just looks like, um, you know, something someone poops in. <laughs> it's funny you should say that. A pooper. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> You're on to something. So let's go over these accounts where we actually have record of people talking about these this chair being used for testicle touching. So the first account begins roughly around 1290, not long after the first Pope Joan tale by Jean de Mailly was written. And it's by Geoffrey Corlon, a Benedictine chronicler, who, when addressing the female Pope's story, comments... It is said that this is why Romans established the custom of verifying the sex of the elected pope through the opening in a stone throne. There is another account from roughly the same time from Robert Duzay, which said, I heard of this seat where a pope is proved to be a man. Then we have one from Adam of Usk, a Welsh chronicler who was in Rome in 1404 when Pope Innocent VII was elected and describes the consecration events 
including the procession and use of the chair. Quote, Then, after turning aside out of abhorrence of Pope Joan, whose image with her son stands near St. Clement's, the Pope, dismounting from his horse, enters the Lateran for his enthronement, and there he is seated in a chair of porphyry, which is pierced beneath for this purpose, and one of the younger cardinals may make proof of his sex. Then, while a Te Deum is chanted, he is borne to the high altar. Another account comes from Bernardino Correo, who witnessed the consecration of the Borgia Pope, Alexander VI, in 1492. A famous, scandalous pope in his own right, it should be said. We're not there yet, eventually. Correo says, Finally, when the usual solemnities of the Sancta Sanctorum ended and the touching of testicles was done, I returned to the palace. So... This then becomes a real possibility that the chairs were indeed used for sex verification. But if Pope Joan never existed, why would they start doing this? I don't know, ma'am. Well, there's a couple of potentials here. The simplest argument to be made is that for at least a century at this point, because most of these sources are coming from the 15th century, The myth of Pope Joan was simply considered to be a fact. Like we said, it's a scandalous story from the past. And so it might make sense that if they uncovered this chair, it would then be used to ensure a Pope Joan never happened again, if the clerics at the time thought that this was an actual possibility. But verifying a Pope's nether regions may have another purpose. And I have to thank Nathan from Footnoting History for bringing this up in his episode on Pope Joan from 2018, because this struck me as very interesting. So in his episode, Nathan explains that bodily deformity could impede or prevent a man from becoming a cleric. There were actual rules against deformity if you wanted to be a cleric. And this brought to mind, for me, one such deformity that this could help prevent, and it's one we've already talked about in this show already, all the way back to the Council of Nicaea. Do you remember the weird thing that they talked about at the Council of Nicaea? I don't. How about you just (laughs) use your words and tell me again? Just check it. I mean, it stood out. It stood out. They're all like, let's talk about Arianism and all of that. And then also let's talk about... Santa punched a man, and then they had to deal with castration. Oh, yes. Oh, all those, uh, so those, yeah, those uh, clerics were just doing it for, like, I'm so pious I cut off my dick. That's exactly it. Yeah, you've hit it on the mark. So they had to prohibit self-castration due to this conflicting moral discussion about uncontrolled lust and chastity, and this, they had this concern That one, men were proving in doing so that they weren't actually pious and couldn't control themselves, but also that men who castrated themselves and thought that as a demonstration of their piety were then heavily indulging in other excesses of the body or living scandalously with women. So in this way, a cleric who was castrated might be seen as excessively licentious and a poor choice to be Pope. I guess they missed all of those licentious cues on Rodrigo Borgia, but I digress. So there is a possibility that this verification took place not to ensure that the Pope was a man, but that the Pope was 
a whole man, so to speak. And also this whole discussion about body deformity as an impediment to being a member of the clergy led me down a big rabbit hole. So this might be a topic for a future episode, because I am very interested in the history of disability and deformity and all of that. So big thanks to Nathan for providing me with some wonderful sources. But then, of course, there's also the possibility that the ball-touching stories are just not true. We do have historians and chroniclers who give a much more in-depth description of papal election and consecration processes at this time, who have no such inclusion or have any discussion of sex verification. And if they do mention it, they mention it as being something that's completely manufactured and didn't actually happen at the time. As historian Elaine Barreau states, the right never existed, or at least none of the many and detailed normative texts that outline the formalities of papal coronation mentions it. So if the chairs did not serve a purpose that involved testicles, but we definitely have chairs that we can point to as papal instruments. There's chairs there. But, but what, why do we have this chair with, with the hole in it? What are they? Poopers. What do they do? Yeah, you've nailed it. Because sedia stercoraria literally translates to dung chair. <laughs> and so <laughs> there's things the, Italian. <laughs> but you've you've hit it. This this could just be poopers for old men. Yeah, you know, look, I grandparents they have the little thing that goes over the toilet at a certain point. That's just another toilet seat. Have you seen those? Old people, yeah. old people, it's one of those. It's a rolling over the toilet, toilet seat <laughs> for old people who can't get up good. This is an ancient version of one of those, yeah. Which also explains why we see them referred to as like stools of easement repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> they still make those things? They still make them. They're probably a lot more comfortable. They might be a lot less fancy though. Gotta give them that. These are carved with whirls and beautiful, intricate designs. And it's porphyry. It's porphyry. That is such an expensive stone. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> well, I guess only the best easy pooper for our popes. <laughs> One article I read tried to suggest that they might be birthing chairs, but again, why does the pope need a birthing chair? It doesn't look large enough. For anything to be birthed. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's very small. Only food babies. <laughs> well, the only Pope who would need a birthing chair is Pope Joan, and that kind of defeats the Why whole purpose. Why are there so makes... many of them? Exactly. Why do we have two special old people poopers? <laughs> the fact that there's two to begin with is, like, a little too many. Like, one. One, one chair to check your balls. No, these are definitely, like, wheel them around to wherever they need to be for those old people. <laughs> and, and there might actually even be an explanation as for why the popes might have porphyry old people poopers, which has to do with a level of humiliation upon the election of a pope. We get this initially from Bartolomeo Platina in 1579, who says, The seat is prepared so that he who has acquired such a great magistracy might know that he is not God, but a man, subject to discharging the needs of nature, whence the chair is appropriately dubbed stair Now, 
on a website I found with articles titled Papal Humiliations outlining the various ceremonies that are associated with consecration, the author Aldratus Rivalensis says the chair was to remind the Pope that he was human and not a god, so he should come to sit on the seat of St. Peter humbly. Here you are on a toilet in front of everyone. Embarrassing? Yeah, that's because you're not God, so be a humble man. Be very humble and take a in front of us. It's very much like in ancient Rome when you'd have a triumph for a general and they had a specific slave called the Auguria who would stand behind the general whispering, remember that you're mortal and gonna die one day during the whole celebration of this man. What a weird job. You're trying to keep that general humble, so yeah. Hey, hey you, you're still a man, you're gonna die one day. Hey, all this festivity for you? Enjoy it now because you're gonna die one day. So it, this is the papal version of that. Hey, hey, you still need to poop sometimes. <laughs> That's the thing. So, and if they are meant to resemble a birthing chair for whatever reason, like we said, too small, historian Cesare D'Onofrio says perhaps this was meant to symbolize the church as like the mother church, which a pope is then taking stewardship of. So it's just that I, very strange very strange argument there, but... What a weird thing to say about a chair. Yeah, yeah. This article also argues that the use of these chairs in the ritual of consecration actually predates our earliest tales of Pope Joan. But they didn't source where they actually got that information. But that would definitely help the argument of, this is to remind you that you are human by putting you on a toilet in front of everybody. But there's one more reason that they might have used this chair, why the popes would be using this chair, and it is simple and stupid. I mean, it already is very stupid, so it's only going to get stupider. I think I've been talking about this chair for like 20 minutes. I know, but it's an important chair. So the director of the Catholic University of America's Rome program, David Don Vasquez, when interviewed about Pope Joan, suggested that the sedia was only used because it just happened to be the most impressive chair in the church's possession at that time. Quote, Because it's elaborate. It's purple. It was the most expensive marble of Roman times, and so it was only used for the emperor. It doesn't matter that there's a hole there because you can sit there and still be crowned. So, that's an argument. Either way, Whatever the reason, all such chair rituals, testicle touching, old people poopers were all phased out of the consecration process by the early 16th century. So we can't be sure. And they got more uh, metal and less interesting looking poopers? Yeah, they're a lot less fancy now. I mean, you would feel pretty majestic on that thing, wouldn't you? Now, the next argument made for Pope Joan is a more recent one. And this one should ring a bell, at least to you, Fry, because we were actually interviewed by the Smithsonian Magazine about this research when it came out. Yes. <laughs> so, it was a big deal. It was a big deal for me. It was a big you deal for us. You got interviewed. An interview, because you are the smart one. Well, I sent it to you, and I'm like, do you want to say anything? You're like, Pope Joan! So. <laughs> I got nothing to say about Pope Joan. <laughs> so this had to do with some coins found and analyzed by Michael E. Habicht, who is an archaeologist from Flinders University. 
These coins, known as deniers, were found on an excavation into papal burials in Rome and had been credited to Pope John VIII, but had a somewhat unique monogram that was different than all of the other coins minted under Pope John VIII. And so Habicht argued that this could mean that they came from the legendary John VIII, which is Johannes Anglicus, a.k.a. Pope Joan. Habicht also argued for the authenticity of the coins, noting that they couldn't be fake, as there is no market for medieval coins. So nobody is trying to make this as a forgery, because nobody wants to buy medieval coins. Anyways, I'm going to send you this uniquely monogrammed coin. That's what it looks like. Oh, okay. So one of the sides has the Frankish Emperor's monogram, and one is supposedly hers. Or at least that's the argument that they made. So the one on the left is the one they're associating with Joan, and you can see the one on the right says Ludovicus, which would be Lothair. There's that. What do we make of this coin, and does its existence prove the existence of Pope Joan? Well, since I've already spent a lot of time with Habix's research because of that interview, I can say no. No, it does not. Wouldn't somebody just make a coin somewhere, you know, if they're making up stories? That's exactly it. So first off, the most important one here is, even though the monogram is different from other coins associated with the real Pope John VIII, it's not exclusively unique. There are coins with very similar designs that Pope John VIII did verifiably use earlier in his papacy. There's a possibility that this coin is slightly deviated and just a little weird. Maybe it was just not carved correctly. Maybe it wasn't stamped exactly on point. It could just be deviated. And while I agree with Habik that this is not likely to be a modern forgery, we should not discount the possibility that during the height of the legend, so 13th through 15th century, the market for such a relic of a female pope would have been huge. Like, all religious relics being fake was big business back through the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance. So it may not be a forgery of today, but that doesn't mean it's not a forgery back then. So this argument does not convince me. Fair. And finally, the last physical evidence argued for Pope Joan is the alleged bust of her in the Cathedral of Siena. So the cathedral in Siena contains a bust for all popes up to Lucius III. So there are 170 busts in this church. And if we take the 15th century letter from a Parisian theologian, Jan Leroy, he overheard Archbishop Aeneo Piccolomini, the future Pope Pius II, discussing a bust on display of Pope Joan. However, this bust no longer exists, if it ever did. There are claims that it was removed in the 17th century according to a diary entry from Antoine Paggi by Pope Clement VIII and was recast to be Pope Zachary. Peter Stanford, who went to visit the busts while writing his book The Legend of Pope Joan, has seen the bust of Zachary and the 170 still present, and comments how unlikely he thinks this recasting to be, if it, in fact, was Zachary that it was remade into, saying that his features are 
quite masculine. Manly. Big jawline. But the busts are um, pretty terrifying to look at, actually. They're, they're a little bit concerning. So I'm going to send you some photos of just the busts in general. They look down at you from the top of the cathedral. Okay. Oh, they're staring at me. Oh. Yeah. So there's that. Although I would like to draw your attention. I can't, I don't have, there's not an image on the internet of the Zachary bust for us to really have a good look at. However, if there was one that was going to be recast, Marco from Storia d'Italia and I were talking about this. Look at Honorius. This has got to be the one. That could be a lady. That could be a lady. That's the softest old man I've ever seen. And and none of the other ones are, are soft. Like, here's another close-up for you of just how not soft these men are. They are harsh, and poor Sixtus III has the baggiest face. <laughs> soft, soft like the angel below it. Yeah, it's not... Yeah, so... Oh my god, Sixtus is melting. He is melting. So... Leo the Great has a mole. He does have a mole. He is a big one. The last thing I want to say about the bust is that this is, again, these were all constructed in the period where Joan's legend would have been taken as fact. So, again, it might make sense that there was a, a bust of her that existed among the bust of other times, but it just doesn't seem very likely. Now that we've looked at some of the arguments for Pope Joan and evaluated them for their potential, we're just going to spend a minute before we wrap up to clarify and outline the arguments against her existence. And two of these are going to be predominant in any discussion that we have about Pope Joan, so we'll address them together. The biggest obstacles to Joan's story having any sense of legitimacy are how long after the alleged events of the story were recorded, and that the accounts are inconsistent, even when they are numerous. So first off, if we're to take Jean de Mailly's account as the absolute first account of Pope Joan, then we are looking at 400 years between Pope Joan existing and the first person to ever write about her. Yeah, it's been a while. This is an absolutely insane amount of time to exist as a purely oral tradition in a European society, particularly a European society full of church chroniclers. Is there a possibility that earlier sources have been lost? Sure. But in that level of totality? Entirely unlikely. Even if we are generous and go with the later proposed date for Joan's existence as 1099, that's still 150 years. Entirely unbelievable. And again, not being able to date a figure that would have been so monumental and so noteworthy and so scandalous in the papacy between 855 and 1099 is a gap of 249 years. Even if the Dark Ages were dark, which they weren't, they weren't that dark. And we've had relatively okay sourcing right up to this period, and we're going to see continually okay sources for our next few popes. There are detailed documentations for both Leo IV and Benedict III, so how could it possibly make sense for there to be this stark gap that no one is talking in? Yeah. And maybe, maybe you're one of these people and you're thinking, cover-up. Conspiracy. No, I'm tired. 
<laughs> there is no damnatio memorial this good in history. There is not a single surviving contemporary source, which we have seen is just not something that has happened, even in our darkest timelines. It's also extremely unlikely that the whole of the Christian church, which now, at the point of Joan, is as far-reaching as the furthest extent of the Roman Empire, would have all colluded together to erase Joan for several hundred years. This would be hard enough if the church was a unified entity, but as we know, this is far from the case. The church had its fair share of detractors and critics and schisms and things to fight about and spite each other over. What would it be to stop an Eastern church chronicler from making a note? They had lots of negative things to say about the Pope. So many. And not only that, about 20 years after Joan was allegedly Pope, the conflict between the Pope and the Patriarch of Constantinople, Photius, over supreme authority is going to get so big and so ugly, and the church is going to erupt all over again. Hint, by the way, that's coming. And if a woman had deceived her way into being Pope, this is something Photius would be using against them. In fact, in a condemning speech he makes later on where he's criticizing Rome, he says, Leo and Benedict, successive great priests. So if there was a massive scandal in between those two popes, that's not getting left out by Photius. And, and we, this is even something... <laughs> Your voice is getting so high. You can't handle any more ants. You cannot. <laughs> this idea of some sort of salacious cover-up also discounts an, a tradition of cross-dressing women in the church who were written about and praised for concealing their sex. There's, there's a whole sect of transvestite saints and transvestite nuns that we're going to dedicate a Patreon bonus episode to one day. They're there. They exist. So if Pope Joan was, was of this variety, they'd be talking about it, not covering it up. And let's not forget, the accounts we do have are from clerics. They're from Dominican chroniclers. So the church was clearly not in a hurry in the 13th century to get rid of mentions of Pope Joan. There are 500 mentions of this story in church chroniclers. So how did a perfect cover-up, blackout, damnatio memoriae suddenly get lazy like that? From the sources we have, the church is not in the business of denying anything to do with Pope Joan up until like the 16th century and the Reformation, when Pope Joan starts getting used against them. They weren't that concerned about it. So there is no cover-up. So I'm going to leave you with a final question. Why Pope Joan? If she never existed, why does the legend persist? What was her purpose at the time? How is she used throughout history, and why is she so popular? Why not? That's a good answer. It's a big question. And that is the question for our next episode. We're going to come back to this and look at some really, truly bizarre things about Pope Joan. Ooh, bizarre stuff. Yeah, and if you thought old people pooper was as weird as we were getting and touching testicles, no, no, there's, there's more. Ari, I'm looking at you. You know what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> With that, that brings us to the end of the episode. And we have some thank yous to make because it has been a long time. It's been so long. If you signed up for our Patreon in the last couple months, we're, we're getting to the thanks 
We appreciate all of you. If your name's not in this episode, it's still coming. So first off, a huge, huge, huge thanks to Eamon O'Brien, who sent us an absolute ton of sources, and they have been amazing. And thank you, thank you so much. And we need to absolve our patrons of their temporal sins. So we would like to thank Sonia Meyer, Xavier, Grace Watts, Katie Wallace, Yahel, Mishus Parishus, Papa Q Bear, and an unknown desert wanderer. Oh, an unknown desert wanderer. Yep. They didn't want their name used. They asked to be referred to as an unknown desert wanderer. So. Beautiful. Beautiful. Exactly. <laughs> I hope they live in Arizona or somewhere of an actual desert. Right? Awesome. And and thanks all for sticking with us on Patreon, too, because we did our best during this whole hiatus. And with that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Yeah, bye. Bye. Mm-hmm.